Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Decoding TV, a podcast about television. I'm David Chen, and today is very exciting. We're launching our coverage of a brand new television show. I'm pleased to announce that Decoding TV will be covering The White Lotus Season 2. Now, I was really impressed with The White Lotus when it first started airing in July of 2021 on HBO. The title of the show refers to a fictional luxury resort that has locations all around the world. And the show invited us into the lives of characters that worked for or were visiting The White Lotus, some of whom were delightfully quirky, while others had a darker side, but all of them were tortured in one way or another. Beyond just being a lot of fun to watch, the show also featured some biting commentary about the hypocrisy and obliviousness of wealthy people. I wasn't the only one who loved the show. It was massively buzzed about, critically acclaimed, and it went on to be nominated for 20 Emmy Awards, eventually winning five of them, including for Outstanding Directing and Outstanding Writing. The show's first season consisted of six episodes. Its second season will debut on October 30th on HBO and run for seven episodes. We'll be recapping and reviewing every single one of those seven episodes. Here to join me. As my co-host for those seven episodes, she is a TV critic at Vulture.com and one of my favorite writers on the internet today, Roxana Haddadi. Welcome to Decoding TV. Thank you so much. I'm so excited to talk about this show with you. I am excited as well. Um, I want to talk to you about the White Lotus Season 1. That's what the purpose of this episode is going to be. We're going to talk about the White Lotus Season 1, reflect on our thoughts, specifically talk about the finale and where we left off with that episode. But before I get to that, I just want to mention you can find more episodes of this podcast at podcast.decodingtv.com. Email us at decodingtv at gmail.com and follow us on uh, Twitter, TikTok, and YouTube at Decoding TV. If you're interested to support this podcast, you can also become a paid member at DecodingTV.com, where you can find ad-free episodes as well as get early access to episodes. Roxana Haddadi, you reviewed The White Lotus Season 1 for RogerEbert.com, and in your review, you wrote that it was, quote, alter- alternately hilarious and unsettling. The White Lotus isn't a feel-good watch, but it is a must-watch, end quote. Roxana, why was it a must-watch for you? Um, I think it was a must watch for me because, as you mentioned, it was so biting. It felt like it was really digging deep into this idea of does money make you happy? Does it make life easier? How do those things sort of intersect? I mean, I think the idea of class consciousness and Hollywood productions feels sort of inherently hypocritical <laughs> because these shows are coming from people who are wealthy and perhaps more well-off than us and have more access. But I thought that this show actually had something to say about how all of that sort of changes who you are and how access to it changes who you are. So I really liked all of that narrative content and the sense that the show had a distinct point of view. And then it also benefited from having this amazing ensemble, right? I mean, Jennifer Coolidge was amazing. Connie Britton was amazing. We're very used to Jake Lacey as sort of a rom-com, goofy, 
sort of figure and he was very threatening and sort of ominous in this. So I think also the cast really helped in sort of make these stories come real. Um, and just on a very small note, I really liked the, uh, the terrible college students. They were probably my favorite. And I loved how often they wore like Rage Against the Machine t-shirts. Just <laughs> middle school me was very pleased by that. Yeah, yeah. Some great points there. Uh, I, I agree with you. When I was watching the show, part of me was wondering, how close are these actual people in real life to the characters that they play? Because here's the thing. The, the thing with being an actor in Hollywood is it's kind of weird because sometimes you can make $5,000 in a year or sometimes you can make $5 million in a year. And yeah. it's just like there's just such a vast range. Um, mm-hmm. So there is this kind of potentially meta commentary of like, are these people playing some version of themselves? Uh, and, and I agree with you that there is some sort of tension there where uh, Mike White is presumably a fairly wealthy uh, white dude, uh, but he's making a show that is meant to critique people of his class. And mm-hmm. how meaningful can that critique be if it comes from someone of that class, right? right. Uh, at the same time, I do think it does a pretty good job of making rich people look pretty <laughs> terrible, you know, and yes. uh, and and the uh, not only just making them look bad g- generically, but like the specific blind spots that uh, rich people or wealthy people or uh, privileged people can often have. I think it does a great job of illuminating. And as you point out, the the ensemble is amazing, um, and it's just fun to watch like beautiful people, you know be awkward around each other and kind of have like terrible painful conflict with each other you know that's a fun zesty enterprise so i really like the the show in general as well and found it to be like compelling uh must watch tv also uh loved the soundtrack and score i thought those were all like really evocative um and kind of inextricably tied to the show um so very very memorable stuff yeah opening credits really good stuff yeah the opening credits are amazing that we're seeing this initially sort of welcoming tropical wallpaper that then eventually transforms into sort of a uh a location of rot and corruption and sort of things falling apart i really loved that i also think that it sort of hit us at a time post-Parasite, when people were more interested in these kind of commentary sort of projects. I believe it was pre-Squid Game, right? So I think that we were in this time where people were sort of willing to see what these stories had to offer. And this one was just really well done in a variety of different ways. Yeah, totally. Uh, So we both loved The White Lotus Season 1. We will see if The White Lotus Season 2 can live up to the white lotus season one or if it's going to be more maybe like a true detective season two type situation a big little lies season two <laughs> a big little lies situation. you know there's many ways this could go right and wrong so that is the journey we will go on together on decoding tv and i'm really excited that roxana Haddadi is here for it now before we uh get into season two episode one which will happen next week and i, I do want to just point out that in general you can expect episodes to drop uh, recapping that week's episode of The White Lotus within 48 hours after the show airs on television. Um, if you are a DecodingTV.com paid member, you might get it a little bit earlier than that, um, but that's kind of generally what you can expect. Uh, but just wanted to let you know what, what our scheduling will be. But let, let's talk about where we left off with season one. Now, The White Lotus is an anthology series, so 
we are unlikely to see any of these characters except for one show up next season. Um, Jennifer Coolidge, who plays uh, Tanya uh, McCoy, McQuad? McQuaid? Um, McQuaid? McQuaid? Uh, yeah. She is, uh, has already been announced to be in season two. So she's going to be like our one line of continuity between seasons one and two. But presumably season two will be at a different resort of the White Lotus and it will have a whole new cast of characters. Um, that said, I just wanted to kind of refresh people's memories about some of the stuff that happened in season one. So let's talk about some of the main plot lines in season one. Uh, one of the biggest plot lines in season one was around the Pattons. Shane Patton, played by Jake Lacey, uh, who is a real estate agent, and his wife, newlywed wife, uh, Rachel Patton, played by Alexandra Daddario. And uh, Shane Patton is basically the customer from hell uh, this, <laughs> this season, right? He is yes. – what, what is a male version of a Karen? You know, he's the person that's like complaining to see – literally complains to see the manager virtually every episode. About things, everything. You know, things aren't perfect for his uh, honeymoon, so he's really, really upset about it. Uh, so that is Shane's storyline and Rachel's storyline is one of realizing, you know, right, when, right around the time when Shane invites his mom, played by Molly Shannon, to the honeymoon, that perhaps – uh, Rachel has made a terrible mistake in wedding this person who is basically a man-child. Uh, I thought this is a great plot line. I mean, the, the thing about Shane Patton, in my opinion, is he is clearly, like, very uh, a distasteful person. Like, But I don't know if I would quite describe him as morally reprehensible just because um, his actions, I think... Many of us have at some point had some not, – not, I'm not saying – I'm not accusing us of being like Shane Patton's, but I'm saying at one point in our lives, we have probably had a feeling that is similar to something that Shane Patton expresses in season one of the show. Would you say that is reasonable, Roxana? And what did you think of the Shane and Rachel storyline overall? I, I feel like I'm making so many faces because I think that he was the most morally <laughs> reprehensible. Oh, he's certainly the most. He's certainly the most. Yeah, I think that what was really well done about this storyline is it is so clear from the very beginning that Shane thinks he's someone that is guaranteed different treatment because of the money that he has, right? But he also isn't someone who is classy, that maybe that's mean, mm-hmm. <laughs> but I think he's someone who has a lot of money and who sort of thinks that He's owed certain things because he has a lot of money. Um, But I don't think that he has actual preferences. I think he just sees the most expensive thing and thinks that's the best and thinks that Mm. he deserves it. So I think there's a lot of layers of how privileged he is. And then it's wonderful when Molly Shannon enters and plays his mom because you realize, oh, he became that way because she is 100% that way. So I think it was a good way to show us how these sort of toxic characteristics are generational and then i was really impressed with daddario in this i mean we talked we mentioned true detective i think one of her probably breakout things was she was on season one of true detective and she was very good in a supporting role but i think she does really exceptional work here communicating a woman who is trapped and trapped by her own choices right i mean she sort of got swept off her feet by this man she knew she wasn't really cutting it as a writer or a journalist and he sort of offered her a way out and now she's realizing maybe it would have been better 
if I didn't do this. So I think she's the most tragic, sort of empathetic character in this whole thing. And I really liked their dynamic. I mean, a lot of their scenes are in the resort, sort of eating together and just being very tense. And it never feels like honeymoon. Mm, Like the vibe is off the entire time. And I think that really helped us know from the beginning, okay, this is who these people are going to be. This is what their energy is. And it's all bad. And we're just going to go on this journey with them. Really great points. I guess let me try to revise what I was saying about Shane. You know, I think... Because um, I was like, you're wrong. No, no, no. I mean, he's clearly (laughs) awful. Like, he's clearly horrible. But I I think... um, I think I would uh, – the point I was trying to make was I don't think he was like cartoonishly evil is kind of what I was trying okay. to say, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and that I think the the uh, show creator, Mike White, like made him just relatable enough yeah. um, that you could kind of see from his perspective. But I agree. He's – you know, he – I started by saying he's a nightmare customer, uh, totally awful. Like your – when he's interacting with hotel staff, your sympathy is always with hotel staff. Yeah. Uh, and so, but at the same time, you can kind of see, like, if you, like, squint and look askance at what he's doing, that, like, oh, on some level, he just he just wants what he feels he's owed. And, 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 and even though it's really 85 to 95% for him, there is a part of it that is also for his... Uh, his wife, right? Even though he yeah. doesn't see, even though he doesn't recognize her full personhood, um, there is still at least he has told himself that like his actions are are for his wife to some degree. So I'm not saying he's a good person. I'm not saying he is sympathetic, but I think that um, the show did give him enough outs to make it seem like he is um, on some levels doing things for the right reason but and i think you're completely right that the show very smartly begins his character arc with a mistake that someone else made right like Mm -hmm. all of his reactions are over the top but when they arrive at the resort he is correct that he booked a different more expensive better suite and the resort tries to trick to him trick him and lie to him and tell him that he didn't do that so i think from a black and white who was right who was wrong situation shane was right but then every way that he reacts to that mistake is what just digs him into more and more of a sort of ethically awful trench right and i think you made a great point about this idea of him being kind of nouveau riche like it's not even like he really wants the accoutrement of the pineapple suite or anything like that like it's not like he is like oh i just loved it last time i was here like he just right. loves the idea of it yes. um but you know u- ultimately the big thing that happens with rachel is she ends up going back to shane at the end i don't know if you saw that coming uh i thought it could have gone either way and you're obviously rooting for her to break away from this but at the end of the day she chooses class and safety over mm-hmm. her own autonomy and self-determination And as you said, it's quite tragic. Uh, Any thoughts Mm -hmm. on Rachel's ending in this season? I mean, I think Rachel's ending is very haunting. I think there's another ending that we'll get to that's very haunting. Um, And I think they sort of exist in opposition to each other. I mean, the issue with this is that Rachel realizes that she is capable of a different life, right? I mean, she doesn't need to be married to him. She doesn't need to deal with this. No one is forcing her hand. Um, but the decision, yeah, the decision to go back to him is sort of giving up on yourself, right? 
I mean, she sort of sees what the possibilities are. She would have to work. I mean, God, who wants to work? She would have who to wants, work. Who wants, have to, who wants to work for like a pop culture website? I mean, come horrible. on. No. Yeah, absolutely not. Um, I kid. I kid. You know, I kid. Yes, of course. Of course. Uh, yeah, <laughs> I love Roxana's work at Vulture. FYI, okay. Well, but, thank you. That's yes. very kind. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, like all these things, like as terrible as he is, she's still at this beautiful resort. And as terrible as his mother is, she would still have a very easy sort of life. So I think that decision, I don't want to say a lot of us would make, but some of us would make, certainly a lot of people have made. Um, but I just totally. think that Daddario gives that character enough sort of vulnerability and enough surrender that I can't judge her for that. It's just like, well, I mean, I feel sorry for you, but I guess that's a choice you made yourself. So, yeah, just very haunting. Very yeah, tragic. when they embrace at the end, it's a very sad, tragic fate for that character. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Um, I mean, I definitely still would like read her name in the news and be like, oh, this woman. <laughs> but at this moment in time, I feel sorry for what she's decided uh, to do. You're, you're saying when she becomes kind of a sort of a rich housewife of trophy yes. or trophy wife, like you would see her being photographed, you know, coming out of a, the most expensive restaurant in town and you would uh, roll your eyes. Yes. But uh, at this moment in the show that you're intersecting with her, you feel sympathy. <laughs> yeah, in this liminal space, I'm like, I feel very sorry for what you're going through. Wow. But, uh, you, but I like that you, pr- you like made a, a whole life for her. You made a whole yeah. life for her, like, beyond the yes. confines of the show. Yes. Um, yes. All right. So that is the Patton's uh, really well done storyline. And, and this is the thing, like, virtually every character in the show has some kind of arc. Yes. Um, and that's really hard to do, but I think the show did a great job of of giving each character some kind of arc. You know, there, some of them are mini arcs, some of them are some of them are barely an arc, but but all the characters get some kind of arc. Um, uh, unless they're people of color, uh, in which case you see them for like a few episodes, and then you never see them again. Well, um, unless they're Hawaiian natives, and then <laughs> yes. it's like, oh, we can't, yeah. we can't you know, take can't, the time. Not enough time in the show for for those people. Sorry. Um, yeah. it, it is true that I do think that is a huge weak spot of the show. Yeah. Characters like Lonnie from the first episode, Kai, like once they do their thing and make their impression, like they perform their plot function, they're basically never heard from again, um, which is kind of a bummer for a show that one would think is interrogating the idea of privilege. But anyway, I think well, yeah. I, I, we can briefly speak to this. I mean, I yes, think go ahead. it's hard because I think the show and Mike White would say, I think he did say in interviews that we are seeing the perspective of the guests, right? So why would you sort of follow Lonnie in the rest of her life? And why would you know what happens to the employee that Paula sort of has this affair slash planned heist with? And on the one hand, I get that. On the other hand, I do feel like it sort of feels like a little bit of a justification for not writing these stories to be like, oh, well, I mean, the point is that they get to leave. It's like, right, I get that. But there could have been a little bit more for these characters to sort of elucidate further. What is tourism, right? I mean, like, what are these places forced into? And how do you have to become a product to survive in a classist system. And I think the show could have gone further on that. Yeah, it was interesting to read and hear about Mike, the, the criticism to the show on those regards. 
mm-hmm. right? Uh, and also, like, read Mike White's responsibility. And, you know, the show does kind of directly address it. But, like, what is the place of the white male in modern right. society? And and I think there is this sense from people like Mike, Mike, White, Mike White that it's like, I, I don't know if there is a place, you know? Um, and I think he is understanding of the criticism and, like, and like is accepting of it. But I do think that there is this kind of, um, I, I did find there to be kind of the lack of acknowledgement of the potential idea that someone like Mike White could use his position and considerable resources and clout to like elevate uh, people who might be more underrepresented uh, in, in Hollywood. Yeah. Right. Um, I think he wrote and directed all the episodes, right? But it's, yeah. it's like, you know, there's probably opportunities to, like, um, give other people, you know, the directing job that uh, uh, for the show that he's show running. So, anyway, it, it did feel – there were a few things about season one that rubbed me the wrong way. But it's like, hey, I still like the show. I'm still into the show, you know. Um, but we've, we've touched upon a few of those things. Uh, the Mossbachers. Nicole Mossbacher is played by Connie Britton, who is the CFO of a search engine company. Kind of a Sheryl Sandberg type. Yeah, a very lean-in sort of tech wife type. Yes, yes. The Laura Um, Dern of Big Little Lies. Gotcha. Yes, that's right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, And her husband is Mark Mossbacher, played by Steve Zahn. Her daughter is Olivia. Uh, Olivia's friend is uh, Paula, played by Brittany O'Grady. And um, they also have a son named Quinn Mossbacher, played by Fred Hetchinger. So yeah, and Olivia is Sydney Sweeney. I don't know if we mentioned yes, that. Yes, 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 yes. Um, so this was a kind of interesting storyline. Like you know, all the storylines were, were were pretty good. Um, I think the character that probably goes on the biggest, the characters that go on the biggest journeys, are Quinn and um, like Paula and Olivia. I think right. Um, I think less Olivia, more so Quinn. Yeah. And Paula. Yeah. Quinn really was kind of a tragic figure in some ways as well because he is also suffering in a rich family mm-hmm. um, because people literally don't listen to anything he says or any of his opinions or, or what he wants, right? <laughs> Not at all. I, 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 he d- at basically all. doesn't have personhood in his family. And no. like you see it like in every single scene, he will say like, I want to do this. And like no one listens to him or cares what he has to say. And it's very, very sad. I mean, what did you think of the Quinn storyline? Well, I think the Quinn storyline, I mean, you were just mentioning sort of the Mike White idea of what is the place of the white man. And I think this storyline explicitly sort of grapples with that, right? I mean, Steve Zahn's character is very aimless. He feels overshadowed by his wife. And then you have Quinn, who is sort of doing his best to be like, we're in Hawaii, shouldn't we do some stuff that is Hawaiian? Like, shouldn't we be vaguely interested in where we are? And his mother continues being like, oh, well, white men have a really hard time right now and you should listen to, you know, listen to him. But she never does. So I think the storyline is really an analysis of like liberal politics and sort Mm -hmm. of this sense of what is the infighting within people who say that they're liberal or people who say that they're progressive or say that they have sort of forward thinking ideas and ideals. How do you actually live that, especially if you are this level of wealthy and sort of this level of detached? How do you actually put forth these things that you say that you value? 
Um, and it's interesting to me that you said you thought Quinn was tragic because I actually think he has the happiest ending. Yeah, in some ways, yeah. But like, first of all, and we don't know what, what happens. To, like, you know, uh, like we don't see the aftermath. Like basically what happens at the end, obviously, is he escapes his family. He's yeah. a minor. He's 16 years old. Yeah. So his family's going to pursue him and figure well, out where he is, you know? Maybe. They have considerable resources, Roxana, yes. you know? Um, this, this, but but this yes, is... he he is the one that becomes, like, fully self-actualized and does what he wants at the end, like, yes. on his own terms. And so that yeah. is that is good. But it's, but it's only because he's been kind of living this simulacrum of life prior to that. You know, like, it's only because he's he doesn't feel at all fulfilled in anything that he's been doing before. And if he did, he wouldn't feel like he needs to take such drastic action. Now, maybe it's a good thing that he takes drastic action, you know, but... To me, it just feels like he's in a very unloving family, and that's that's really sad, you know. Or, the, or or that doesn't recognize him for who he is, which is his own form of unloving, you know. I think all of that is true, but I think that this show is sort of making. I think it's sort of making a case for what kind of drastic action actually gets results, and there's something sort of bleak about how much the other drastic actions fail i mean paula's scheme fails we'll get to armand his scheme fails and i think the show is sort of doing an implicit if you try to harm the system it's not going to work wealth is too entrenched class is too entrenched power is too entrenched and you can't as an individual alter that the only thing you can do is leave right and that's what that's what quinn does he just leaves and i do respect that you know i think he probably if we're saying that shane was the most morally reprehensible i do think that quinn might be the one who's sort of baby politics i agree with the most Mm -hmm. i do think you bring up great points about the tension between um trying to live out leftist politics or be a liberal and being incredibly rich yeah. And we see that play out, you know, in the conflict between Nicole's – the character of Nicole and her daughter who's kind of a classic Gen Z. But what mm-hmm. I really like about that relationship is the very final scenes where Olivia kind of reintegrates back into her family. And it's it's kind of a mirror of what happens with Rachel where she's like, oh, like at the end of the day, we're all going to go back to the rich people who are we're related to, right? Like mm-hmm. um, no matter how – Many challenges we've gone through, no matter what, you know, at the end of the day, we're going to go back to the rich people we're related to. And um, and there's this kind of inevitability. And I guess you're right that Quinn does break free of that. So, And Olivia does something I think that Shane does. Like Olivia does to Paula what Shane does to Rachel, which is why don't you appreciate what I'm doing for you? Mm. Like I think yeah. when Olivia finds out about Paula's sort of scheme to steal his – steal. Olivia's mom's jewelry and sort of sell it. I think there is that conflict of I brought you on this vacation and I'm doing something nice for you. Why would you sort of stab my family in the back? Which is exactly what Shane does with Rachel, right? I mean, there's this sort of incredulousness as to why would you betray me? And it's not looking past the individual. It's not acknowledging that 
well, the whole system is sort of wrong and I'm trying to do something to right the system. Yeah. So I think there's that part of it. I also think there was a there's lot this of obliviousness to the system, right? Like the injustices, yeah. the violence inherent to the system basically is kind of yeah. the things that they, they, yeah. they don't even recognize. And, um, and yeah, great point. Anyway, sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt. Go ahead. No, no. Well, all I was going to say is I remember at the time that people were sort of thinking, Paula, did you really think you would get away with this? (laughs) So I do think that is something sort of interesting to consider, too. Paula's scheme is sort of childish, right? It is sort of immature. I mean, I don't think she has the tools to figure out how to actually work within this sort of infrastructure, sort of like you said. I mean, she's not someone like Rachel, who has like spent more time in these higher classes and who has sort of figured out how to navigate it. Paula, it seems like, is on this vacation, decides to do something impetuous, and her ending is very sad. I mean, again, she acquiesces, right? She surrenders to the system. She can't do anything against it. Yeah. um, I completely agree. I mean, the thing is, as was pointed out in the actual show itself, the plan was a little bit too stupid, I think. Like, yeah, it was a little bit too dumb. Olivia says, like, hey, you wanted me to put this necklace in the thing, and then all of a sudden the next day it gets broken into, and they know the code. Like, it makes no sense, you know. No. Um, it did almost feel like more of a high school plot than a college mm-hmm. pl- a college age mm-hmm. person's plot. But uh, anyway. I liked uh, also before we move on from the Mossbackers, I did like the kind of tension between Olivia and Paula. Right, there's this kind of that that Olivia, the Sydney Sweeney character, feels almost some kind of ownership over yeah. Paula. Right, in a weird way throughout the season, that kind of mm-hmm. comes out in these weird, spooky ways. So I like that they didn't like say that much about it, but you could kind of feel it between the two of them, and it's in the performance. So just wanted to give that a shout out as well. I also think it's worth saying that Steve Zahn is very funny. Mm-hmm. I mean, the, the the Nicole and Mark storyline might have been on a little bit on the weaker end, just because I think that this sort of, oh, our relationship is imbalanced because of male and female gender roles was a little bit more basic than I wanted from the show. But I think giving Connie Britton an opportunity to go against type and giving Steve Zahn some of the zanier, more deranged line deliveries as he's like reaching his limit of how much he'll take from his wife and from his daughter and from the stranger that's on the trip with them. I do think that he put forth a lot of the humor of the show in a very welcome way. Hey, Roxana, let me try and take you down a mini rabbit hole here, okay? Because I'm trying to figure out like what the the plot line with Mark and Nicole was trying to say. Uh, Mark spends most of the first season, I agree Steve Zahn's hilarious, but Mark mm-hmm. spends most of the first season as kind of an ineffectual beta male, uh, mm-hmm. complaining about his station in life. And then he is reinvigorated when Kai uh, thieves from their suite and uh, and then he like attacks him and then like that makes him feel like a man again, right? Right. And I, my interpretation of it is... I you know I don't think this is like one of the messages of Fight Club, in in my opinion, is that like th- this idea that like by if you're a man you know that by getting in touch with your more primal aspects like you can feel more fully actualized. Mm-hmm. I don't think this mo- this show is trying to say anything like that, um, because I don't think that 
you know, he was in particularly very much danger, right? Um, I think what the show is trying to say is that, like, for somebody of this cast level, even a minor expression of masculinity is sufficient um, to kind of – yeah. So that's kind of my interpretation. Like, it wasn't like what he did was particularly heroic, but it was like even just like a little bit of it is enough to kind of grease the wheels of this marriage, as it were. What, what, What do you think of that? I think, yes. I mean, I agree. I think we see that exact same thing happen with Shane and Rachel, right? Because I think what happens to Armand is sort of predicated on Shane thinking, I need to protect my wife. I need to protect myself. I mean, protect yourself from a resort employee. (laughs) You know what I mean? But I think that the whole element of crime in this series is a commentary on just how detached and rarefied these people have become i mean they're not used to minor inconvenience they're not used to what is really just a petty crime i mean they're not used to any of that so i think the opportunity to sort of be threatened again just becomes a way to reaffirm how special they are i mean mark uses it as a way to prove his worth to his wife that he doesn't feel worthy of in any other way. So, yeah, I don't think it's actually saying this is an important thing that men need. Right. I think it's saying this is something that, again, just becomes commodified and sort of filtered through these class dynamics. Or or you need the the taste of it, you know? Yeah. But you don't need the actual thing, whatever that actual thing might be, perhaps. Right. Anyway. Right. Um, Okay, well, let's talk about Tanya, played by Jennifer Coolidge. Fan Obvious, favorite Tanya. Obviously, Delight. Very funny. You know, very goofy, very wacky. Uh, love the random lines. She gets together with uh, Greg, played by John Grease. And I really like this character and this plot line because it really shows, A, how much power wealthy people can wield over lesser people of lesser wealth, um, mm-hmm. not only over their time, but also their attention and emotional resources. And also, like, how um, how thoughtless they can be, right? Like, it, because it's not important for them, it's like they don't understand what it's like for someone in Belinda's position who's played by Natasha Rothwell. Um, so, yeah, that, that was the primary function of that storyline for me. W- what did you think of the uh, Jennifer Coolidge-Tanya storyline? Tanya was very complicated for me because she is sort of playing a little bit of a clown, right? I mean, everyone else at the resort sort of avoids her. They've seen that she's going through something and they don't want to deal with it. I mean, she sort of has become almost like this Miss Havisham figure, like haunting the resort (laughs) and repelling other people. So I think the show sort of plays that for laughs a little bit uh, because Coolidge is sort of so good at those very simultaneously clueless and pointed sort of scenes. Um, But again, yeah, I mean, I think what this storyline probably did the most is you're right, it showed the thoughtlessness of her and how she could move through the world. But I also think that it did provide a focus on the flip side of that, right? I mean, somebody like Belinda who has dreams but knows that her dreams need access to capital and she needs to temper herself around this woman she needs to befriend her she needs to be 
available. I mean, she needs to basically rearrange her whole life to fit into what this woman needs. So maybe she could have a shot at starting her own business. I thought what was really interesting about this is I think it's sort of a commentary on philanthropy in general, and Mm. especially like millionaire philanthropy and the sense that, uh, you know, if our economic system was better, you probably could get the funding to run your own business and you wouldn't have to sort of run through, you know, this obstacle course of the, things the, with The Tanya. whims of rich people. Like, it wouldn't exactly. be based off of the whims of rich people who just may or may not happen to feel like giving you money at that time, right? Yeah. I mean, yeah. Tanya flip-flops, right? The entire yep. season is her saying, this is a great idea. Somebody should do it. I don't know if it should be me, but somebody should do it. So I think this was probably, I think, the most pointed subplot about, like, a microcosm of something that's larger, um, and again, uh, like Natasha Rothwell is wonderful in this. Like if people only knew her from Insecure, I think she does a really impactful job. And I think when I mentioned earlier that Daddario's end is sort of just heartbreaking, Rothwell's is too. I mean, arguably more because, I mean, Daddario, Rachel gets to sort of go be wealthy i mean like oh it's so tragic but like (laughs) natasha is left running this resort that she clearly hates there is this kind of shakespearean tragedy element to um, natasha getting shafted from tanya i like that tanya gave her some money so it wasn't like sure it didn't make tanya out to be like a complete monster you know like she gave her an envelope full it looked like she gave her a few thousand bucks at least in there you know and so worse Like, yeah, I, I mean, almost think that's it, it's worse. like it's like dehumanizing in a way. Like yes. your time was worth this much, right? Yes. But yes. so so yes, I think that's very fair to say that that is an extremely clumsy and borderline insulting move to do, given like what Belinda was asking for. But there is something Shakespearean about the idea of like maybe Belinda, if 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 um, uh, Tanya hadn't treated Belinda so badly, like Belinda might have actually been there for Rachel and Rachel might not have gone back with Shane, you know, right? That's yeah. the strong implication of the show. Um, and, and Belinda sort of gets punished. I mean, I do think in some way this show is sort of telling you, I don't want to say it does both sides, but mm-hmm. I do think in some, in some slight way, we're supposed to think, well, Belinda wanted it. And she was wrong to want it. I don't know. Maybe that's reaching too far. But I think there's a slight element of that. Like, all these rich people are terrible. I, I, I think I think my interpretation is she was wrong to trust Tanya. Like okay. that, was my, that was my interpretation. Is like, it, she wasn't wrong to want it, but she shouldn't have trusted Tanya. Because she went all in. She was like, yeah. yes, Tanya's going to answer my dreams. I'm like, there's no way that's going to happen. Like, I knew yeah. from the outset that that was not going to happen for her. So, like... Um, hopefully she's going to be smarter next time around. And you know that was one of the most brutal scenes. Was after Belinda, uh, you know, talks to Tanya, talks to Rachel. Um, she's then like getting up on the you know on the um, rock face or whatever and waving at the next crew that's coming in and smiling. And I think that's one of the great things about the show is it does help you understand how dehumanizing the service industry is. You know. Yeah. Um, and and how how much we expect of our essential workers um and how cyclical so, right yeah, I mean, yeah the demand is 
you do this day in and day out. I mean, you don't have yep. variation. You are purely existent on, as you said, the whims of others. Yeah. To go back to just that, the final point about the, the Shakespearean nature of like mm-hmm. Belinda, you know, gets upset by Tanya and then like gives, you know, doesn't want to help out Rachel. Like almost it feels like the message of that is that the system of, um, you know, people who are privileged oppressing or disregarding um, those who are under them, like, helps to reinforce the existing system in a weird way, which is, like, oh, in that in that yeah. way, right? It was that she, Belinda being hurt, then could not help Rachel get out of the system, you know, mm-hmm. uh, in that scenario. I don't know how and, common that, like, specific set of circumstances is, but, you know, it is, like, thematically does fit in a little bit, so. Right, and I mean, I think... And I think, again, it's like, why is it Belinda's place to help Rachel do that? Exactly. Right? Yeah. So uh, and it's about how like, much emotional implicated. labor people expect for free, right? And yes. like, th- that's another theme that runs throughout the season. Yeah. Um, but let's talk about the, some of those workers, right? Specifically, we got to talk about Armand, who is the star of the show. I mean, what an amazing performance. I... Mm-hmm. Didn't know who Murray Bartlett was before this uh, this season began, and I was just completely blown away. And he is so good in the f- season one finale as well with the uh, the dinner scene where he's like greeting everyone for dinner. It's in ultra slow motion. It's like amazing, you know. Um, but he has the sense of this guy who both has a great customer service voice, like. Hello, welcome to the White Lotus. And also is barely keeping it together behind the scenes. Um, and just what a wonderful, richly textured performance. Obviously, somebody who has a tragic end. Uh, and yeah, I, I, I want to talk about the murder mystery element. But before we get to that, overall thoughts on Armand? Yeah, I mean, Armand is amazing. Again, it, it's it's a very smart thing to make the show begin with his error. Because I think then, as viewers, we're thinking of, okay, well, he's overworked, he's a lot of stuff going on, this place is demanding too much, he made a mistake, how can he, quote-unquote, fix it? Is there anything he can do to fix it? So I think, as we're following him around on this journey, at a certain point, I think the show flips your perspective from thinking, how is he going to fix it, to he really shouldn't have to fix it, like, who cares? (laughs) And I think Murray Bartlett, the power of his performance is sort of making you go from they're right, the patents are right, and they deserve something to even if the patents are right, they don't deserve it. And you sort of understand why Armand would think that after all of these years of working at this place and seeing these kind of people. Um, But Bartlett's performance is amazing. I mean, he just switches on a dime between these character traits. And I think... You know, we've talked about how wonderful everyone is, and everyone is wonderful, but I do think that performance is probably the most indicative of what White is trying to say about what these jobs do to you over mm. time. Because it's not a career, right? Mm. It's well, it can, it can be. It can be. But but I think it's sure. a very um, precarious one, you know, as, as yeah. his trajectory in this season shows. He's you can piss off one rich person and then your career is over. Like that's yeah. kind of what, uh, what 
we see taking place. And and as a viewer, you are just enraged by the injustice of it all, you know. Um, and so, like like that that a POS like Jake Lacey's character should be the one that wields the power in this situation. It doesn't make any sense, you know. It doesn't mm-hmm. make any sense. But it is the system that we live in. So. Uh, it's you know the the final s- scenes of the episode are shocking. Um, he decides to go back to Jake's Jake Lacey's character's room and take a crap in the suitcase. They actually show it coming out, which I was mm-hmm. stunned by. I was like, "Wow, that's I don't think I've seen that in a TV show in a pretty long time." Uh, and then he's stabbed and uh, by accident, you know, and then uh, and killed. Um, the episode began with a murder mystery type, or the season began with a murder mystery type deal where you're like, who is in the casket? And I did appreciate how the show head faked you many times. Like, John Grease's character, Greg, has a heavy cough. Mm-hmm. And in general, when a character has a cough on a TV show, they're going to die. Like, that's mm-hmm. 99% mm-hmm. of the time if you Down see a character Abby. coughing. Don't yes, get a cough. They're going to die, right? Don't cough. Um, so, yeah, it's like, is it going to be John Grease's character? Is it going to be Shane doing some dumb stuff? Is it going to be Kai who, like, accidentally gets caught in the robbery? So you don't know who's going to die until the very end. And thematically, it does make sense that, that Armand is the one to die. I mean, he um, he is the one that in the construct of the show um, – or in the construct of this system of capitalism, basically, his life is, quote-unquote, worthless. I don't feel that way, but I think the mm-hmm. show is basically saying, like, these are people whose fates can be just decided at a whim without any consideration by complete dipshits. So mm-hmm. inherently, they are worthless, and um, and the show kind of makes that point with a stirring finality by killing the character of Armand. Uh, now, I, I am kind of curious, like, you know, so I, I thought the... I thought the um, murder mystery stuff worked fine. Like, throughout the season, they weren't, like, multiple times an episode cutting to the casket and being like, I wonder who it is. You know, like, it was, was, like, fairly subtle. So that was good about it. Um, I was also curious. But but it was, like, one of the things that, like, kept me watching. And I am curious. I am curious, like, in season two, I I don't think there's going to be a murder mystery is my guess because that would be a little bit too coincidental. Um, but I wonder if there's some other similar construct there. Um, anyway, so I think well, and I think what'll be interesting is to see how does this show function as an anthology, right? I mean, my understanding was that it became an anthology after the very successful season one, which was like a big little lies thing that happened. So I think it's just a matter of like what connective tissue is it? We know there's going to be a resort. Presumably, they're going to be a lot of rich people. But is it like a Hangover 2 type situation where everything is identical, yeah. but we're just in a different place? Yeah, I'm really curious to what level of sort of mimicry or recreation we're going to get. Yeah, that's a that's a great question. I will tell you that I have been to the actual filming location of The White Lotus uh, season one. Uh, and this will probably be my last opportunity to talk about it in a way that makes any sense. Um, and? But, well, it's fa- it was completely fascinating, Roxana, because mm-hmm. uh, there were probably – I am not exaggerating. I probably saw approximately 1,000 people oh. when I was there. And, like, it is just packed to the gills with people. Wow. Um, this was – I went in, like, 
summer fall of 2021 basically okay. and um it was uh, like the show makes it seem like oh this is a tiny intimate resort with yeah, like very maybe like small. 100 to 200 people i mean there were hundreds upon hundreds of people ever there's also a wedding going on at the, at the time we were there so it was like, but, 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 but like I'm saying there was like hundreds of people separate from the wedding. Like right. it was just like overwhelmingly large quantity of people. So I, I was actually incredibly impressed with how they were able to make it look so small. Now they shot it during COVID and apparently everyone just stayed at the resort. So, you know, like that makes sense. Yeah that, yeah. that was helpful. But, but I agree with you. I'm also very curious, like it doesn't feel like a second season that was born out of like, I had a, another story to tell necessarily because right. it was always intended to be a limited series is my understanding mm-hmm. and so the, you're in the danger zone already mm-hmm. um because there have been times as true detective season two great example where like it, season two is like rushed to production uh and the scripts were not in a good state you know and well, so I've, i have such mixed feelings on true detective season two mm-hmm. i think that i've liked it more each time i've rewatched it but i can't figure out if i'm convincing myself of that or it's actually like good it's hard to tell it's hard to say fair enough fair enough um were there any uh moments at the resort where you were like oh hey that place from that scene yes yes tons of moments like Mm -hmm. you know the place where they eat breakfast every day is like um i don't think it's actually a restaurant in the in the Mm -hmm. real resort um the place where quinn like sits and uh you know uh, goes to sleep every night you know on the beach is it's like very easy to it's very accessible and i'm like it's the place and it looks exactly the same and so um you know the place where uh the patents hang out you know near the, the the bar and everything like that that's all there it's all there so it's like you know unlike some places where uh, or some shows where you watch it and you go to the place and it looks nothing like it mm-hmm. it's like wow it is identical except the real place is way 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 bigger mm-hmm. um and because it's way bigger, it's a little bit less nice feeling than what's on the show. Like what's in the show feels like a very boutique, like, you know, mm-hmm. um, I should point out, I did not actually stay there. I just like went there and kind of looked around because I had heard. And it, it is, it's just, a, you know, instead of the White Lotus, it says the Four Seasons there, you know. Um, and so, uh, but it's, it was a fascinating experience to go. And, uh, and I, yeah, so, but to, to the, the point of what season two is, like, what are the themes going to be? And is a luxury hotel resort that has locations around the world enough to hang a multi-season show on is the question. Right. Like, is that enough of a unifying factor? Um, will it explore other realms of privilege, you know, is kind of mm-hmm. what my question is. So uh, we will and be finding will out here. The place, yeah. Go ahead. Yeah. And like, and will the place where it's set sort of have more of a role to play? Like, are we going to talk more about tourism and whether it's exploitative for the mm. people who live there. I mean, are we going to do the class thing again? Or are we going to sort of expand? Are we going to do more of how do men feel manly or <laughs> any of that sort of thing? I mean, there are various subplots that we could pull on. Something that we didn't really talk about, but that I think is interesting, is that Armand, before he sort of meets his untimely, sad end, is sort of a nightmare boss. Like he's sort of been trained by White Lotus to almost treat his employees also as sort of replaceable. And so I'm curious too, if we get more of a commentary on, well, how do people 
who work in these places treat each other too? Like, does mm-hmm. that kind of dismissiveness from the wealthy trickle down? I would be curious about that. Yeah, yeah. I, I do think that the show didn't really do enough on the, you know, uh, when it came to the perspective of um, uh, whether or not tourism is exploitative. Um, yeah. You know, and, and specifically with Hawaii, which is very quite controversial. I'm going to be honest with you. Like, after I made that trip to Hawaii, during which I visited the Four Seasons, aka the White Lotus, I, um, I, I, w- I had a, like a bit of a crisis of conscience of a conscience of not knowing if it was okay to go to Hawaii anymore. You know, like right. I think that. Um, there's many people who live on Hawaii that are like, please don't come anymore. You know, like don't we mm-hmm. don't want the tourism anymore. And it's like, who who are we to say no to that? Um, so so it was something that I thought about, and it was something that I didn't think the show really explored at all. Like, yeah, it it made reference vaguely to the fact that like there were native peoples that have rituals, but it's not it doesn't examine the injustice of any of this at all. Right. Um, it just, I mean, it had Kai's family, right? Yes. Their land was taken from them. Yeah. And Paula's whole deal is that she wants to steal the jewelry to help Kai get a lawyer, to, et cetera, et cetera. But again, the jewelry was worth $75,000. Paula, that's not enough. <laughs> that's not going to help you yeah. in a land war. That's not going to work. <laughs> so poor yeah, Paula. Um, she didn't know any better. I, I, I will say I have been um, invited to Hawaii, um, and I'm planning to go in early November um, mm-hmm. by a Hawaiian organization um, to be part of a film festival there. And so that I'm extremely excited about because I'm like, oh, like I can actually go relatively guilt free because, yes. you know, uh, I'm being invited there. But but yeah, in general, and, and, and by the way, I should point out there are ways to visit Hawaii responsibly, you know, sure. and I've, I've since learned more about what that is. But, but I do think that, that that is a legacy of the show. Is that um, I do think for me, there are shows that like have a really strong perspective on right and wrong, like mm-hmm. The Wire, you know, mm-hmm. and there are shows that have that that are good at like bringing up questions. Um, and and this show did both, but like even if it didn't take a position on visiting Hawaii very strongly, you know, like or or uh, oppression of native people or th- things of that nature. It still got me to think about them, you know. It's still like by very the nature of depicting them. I'm like, oh, now I need, I want to think about, I want to explore that more. I want to dig into that more, um, whether or not that was intentional or unintentional uh, on the show's part. But I do appreciate that. Uh, so even when I say the commentary was lacking on that subject, I still appreciate the show for e- even kind of bringing it up at all. Um, and I so, think yeah. just just sort of a, a coincidence of timing is that this came out still when people were. I think doing a little bit more about COVID precautions. So you still had portions of the country who were doing more like masking and staying inside and sort of self quarantining and all that stuff. And you also still had a bunch of people who were traveling all the time and just not changing how they lived. So I think it was interesting for me as well to sort of watch a show that asked you to consider what are the people that you're forcing to work for you on these vacations what are they dealing with and what are they going through um and during covid that was relevant and i think just anytime that's relevant so i appreciated the show for like you said offering up those questions and forcing them to sort of tackle them 
Have you um, been in the service industry before, Roxana? Are you or your family been in the service industry? I'm curious. Um, my, my, I mean, my dad was um, owned and ran a Chinese restaurant for almost two decades, um, during mm-hmm. which my brother and I worked there for many years. So, like, I'm very mm-hmm. as like cashier and stuff like that. So, like, I'm very familiar with you know what it's like to work at a restaurant and do like all the jobs at a restaurant. Um, other than cooking, I did. Um, I did restaurant stuff. I mean, it was like Panera, Baskin Robbins, yeah. like summer type of things. And then my partner uh, does some service industry stuff and worked at Starbucks in high school. So we both have those experiences where you have sort of the nightmare customer, right? Mm-hmm. Mine was the woman at Baskin Robbins who was on the phone and let her child order anything he wanted. And he ordered Reese's peanut butter cup ice cream. And then she blamed me that I didn't know that he was allergic to peanut butter. So, you know, like everybody has, everybody has a version of that type of story. So uh, uh, we know whose side Roxana is going to be on for the White Lotus season two. Yeah. I'm going to be on the don't let your child order ice cream (laughs) that might harm them side. So, yeah, maybe we'll get that. Who knows? Yeah, indeed. Well, this has been so wonderful, Roxana, to chat with you about the show. I'm so excited to dive into season two with you. And again, you can expect episodes to come out at podcast.decodingtv.com uh, within a couple days after this, the show airs on HBO on Sunday nights. Uh, until next time, Roxana, you want to tell people where they can find more of your work in the meantime? Sure. You can find my work at Vulture. You can find me on Twitter. And, you know, just that's it. That's my corner of the internet. All right, we'll link to those in the show notes. But uh, if you want to let us know what you think of The White Lotus and what you're looking forward to, decodingtv at gmail.com. Also follow us on Twitter, TikTok, and YouTube at decodingtv. She is Roxana Haddadi. I am David Chen. Thank you so much for listening. We'll see you for next week's episode, the season premiere of The White Lotus Season 2. Goodbye. Bye. Bye. 